Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Tootsie? God damn it. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm excited to be here. 1982. God. Why 1982? The 70s was an iconic time for film, obviously, because for the first time on a mass scale, studios began investing in young filmmakers and letting them make movies their own way. 1978, Michael Cimino wins the Oscar for The Deer Hunter, which gives him full autonomy over his next film, Heaven's Gate. The production of that movie is widely considered one of the most disastrous in Hollywood history. It bankrupts United Artists, and overnight, studios go, no, we're controlling things from now on. The kids are not allowed to play with toys without supervision anymore. And that's still how mainstream Hollywood movies are made today, by a studio, by committee, by a marketing department. So, this is a year where you really see the trend of Hollywood changing. The auteur method is being stripped away. We are not getting taxi drivers anymore. How does 1982 look for you? It's the death of the 70s Yeah. in terms of that film renaissance. It's a cultural shift into what would become the pop sensibility of the 80s. Everything became very, let's not cross lines. Let's stick to something that makes people happy. Let's stick to something where we're never going to offend anyone by saying this or by doing this. It's going to keep it very copacetic. Movies were interesting. This is a clear year where you can see that shift that you're talking about, where there there were a handful of movies that were really fucking good, and then they'd be overshadowed by something else. But there's also like room for fun. I can have fun. I got some fun on my list. <laughs> we're going to get into them really soon. I have to... Oh, God. I have to be clear about something really quick, and that's these Oscar qualifying years. These things really burn my ass. They do. It's because foreign films can take a while to be released in the United States, and it is not until they were released in the States that they can qualify for Oscars. So, one of my favorite movies in 1982 won four Oscars, but it won them in 1983. That's because the movie was released in its native country in 1982, but it was not released in the States until 1983. Confusing, stupid, sorry. Same thing with King of Comedy. It was released in 1982 in Australia and then didn't get an American release until 83. So there are a lot of layers to this and it's going to come up as we do these year podcasts. There is the foreign release confusion. Then what you're referring to, I don't even know what that's about because the King of Comedy is an American movie, so I don't know why it was released early over there. Yeah, I don't know what that's about either. If it was for a festival, I don't usually count those. I typically count the movie year when it was released in its native country, typically. And then the Oscars mess that up. And then indie films, it can be tough sometimes. Yeah, it's just, you know. It's like a fiscal year. Yeah, but that's where we are for 1982. Let's get into the top 10. You want to go first? Oh, yeah, I'll go first. I'm going to start with a banger. Let's do it. The Beastmaster at number 10, <laughs> directed by- I have no idea what the hell this even is. You've never seen The Beastmaster? No. What is oh, The Beastmaster? Dude, The Beastmaster, <laughs> this movie, well, I don't know how it holds up. I can't imagine it's good, but God damn it, it's, it's awesome <laughs> when I was a kid. 
So the Beastmaster is directed by Don Coscarelli, and it's about this guy named Dar, and he is an ancient warrior with the ability to communicate telepathically with animals. <laughs> the costumes and makeup are really fucking good. Those actually hold up today. I was watching clips of it today, and they terrified me as a kid, and they're still really scary. Like I loved it as a kid, and uh, yeah, the Beastmaster, number 10. Well, shit, I'm going to have to see this now. I I don't know. Yes, I'm a little <laughs> bit speechless. Well, okay, you got to stick by it. I just love of all of the uh, quality that came out in 1982. You went with that, but hey. Yeah, man, you got to <laughs> My number 10 sounds uh, far more serious than that, but it was something I had never seen until researching this post. I love that it's cracking my top 10, and that is Francis, directed by Graham Clifford, starring Jessica Lange. Heavy stuff. In my research, I heard her say that Francis was the best role she had ever done. So automatically that makes me interested. And this is a biopic about real life actress Frances Farmer, who suffered from mental illness and was involuntarily institutionalized because of it. Francis does not glorify its subject or what she went through. This is a hard R movie that I did not expect. And Lang, yeah, never better. It honestly reminded me more of What's Love Got to Do With It, which... That's one, if people haven't seen it and they're like, oh, the Tina Turner biopic. And I'm like, yeah, go go watch What's Love Got to Do With It. That is uh, one of the most brutal and realistic, uh, honestly, domestic violence movies I've ever seen. And it's just wrapped in this biopic. And you're like, whoa. And Francis is, it, it depicts certain things that are very, very terrifying. And I did not expect it. So yeah, Francis. Um, in lists that we do like this, we do not confer as to what we are on our list, we'd like to try to surprise each other. Like, But this was one movie that you kind of subtly, not so subtly kind of hinted that I watch. And I, I didn't get a chance to, but I'm glad you brought it up because that is pretty much the next movie I'm going to see because you spoke very highly about this movie. And I'm glad it cracked your top 10 list. I, I think you're going to like it. It is. It's a tough movie, though. I mean, it's 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 tough. Ugh, what's number nine from you? So number nine. We have Diner by Barry Levinson. Great, great call. I don't know if this is on your list at all. Oh, yes. I never saw this movie. This was all research. This is one of the research movies. And what a cast. Oh, yeah. You got Mickey Rourke, Steve Gutenberg. I love that I just said his name second. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel Stern. Man, no one ever talks about Daniel Stern enough. And he's always good. Like, not just good, he's great. Yeah, he is. And this was one where I thought he kind of stole the movie for me personally. The one scene he has with the records. Mm -hmm. I think it was my favorite scene of the movie. I relate to it because I think you and I do too. Like, you know, we, we're, we're both movie collectors, so we have our DVDs. They mean something to us, these tangible items. But really, he's trying to speak to his wife about how she doesn't know who he is. And it's a whole entire fight over a record collection and it's all about what's not being said in that fight and i think it's just one of the coolest scenes it's a great scene and it is a really good movie this is my number five. Oh, cool i'm so glad it made your top 10 i mean it's one of my favorite film debuts ever rounding out the cast you have ellen barkin paul reiser but yeah i mean the highlight for me is mickey rourke here who is just really announcing himself as a star in this movie it's kind of remarkable just to watch him be so if you like barry levinson you know rain man 
Sleepers, ton of movies. Barry Levinson has so many movies under his belt. Okay, so number nine for me, not a popular movie when it was released, John Carpenter's The Thing. This made your list. It did. And oh my God. I guess I'll put that reaction into context. I'm, I didn't really, it's tough. This is true of a few movies we're going to talk about today. It can be tough to live up to the shadow of certain movies and certain movies have been hyped by everyone and everyone's like this is the best sci-fi movie ever made so you go in with these huge expectations which i really try not to do and i read it at face value the first time and it's it's a smarter movie than that it's about way more than what's going on on the surface and that's why i appreciate it now i love that it just drives people fucking crazy this thing that you can't see it's just driving people insane The practical creature effects in this stand up against anything made today, whether that's CG, makeup, anything. And Nick, you want to know who won the Oscar for Best Makeup in 1982? Sure as hell wasn't the thing. Wasn't even nominated. (laughs) Quest for Fire won, and Gandhi was the only other nominee. I don't even know what the hell Quest for Fire is. How is it not nominated? Exactly. Because this movie was a bomb when it was released. There are people who know way more about science fiction and the sci-fi landscape than myself who can put all this into broader context, but the movie was not, it wasn't really well received critically or otherwise. It didn't make a lot of money. And I don't think people really knew what they had. I think John Carpenter is an tried and true artist in every sense of the word. I'm sad to say that the thing didn't make my list, but I'm so glad it made yours because I wanted to talk about this movie because I really do love John Carpenter's movies. And the thing is, an incredible movie to watch. Yeah, makeup and like the visual effects for all that. And plus you got Kurt Russell, that beard. Oh yeah, great, great. All right, how about your number eight? Uh, this was another movie that I found during this time, um, Missing by um, Costa Gavras. I don't know if I said his name correctly. So basically it's a movie about uh, these Americans, these kind of left-wing Americans who are in Chile during a crisis of a military coup happening. and no one really knows what's happening, but shit is not good. The main one of the main characters goes missing. His wife, played by Sissy Spacek, calls this guy's father, Jack Lemon, to come to Chile to try to find him. But what got to me about this movie was particularly the scene where Sissy Spacek is trying to get home before curfew, but she can't catch a taxi. She can't find a bus. No one's even willing to take her for a ride. So she has to hide in overnight in an alley because she's going to get shot that was very very um sad it was scary it was real and it made me open up my perspective of the world a great deal more so yeah so missing i i really really like this movie yeah, I'm really glad that made your list. That that would be my number 11 for people who care about these things. You know, it just barely missed mine. That's a really good director. You would really like Z. That came out in 1969, I believe. And this is a guy who does not hide from these really harsh true stories. This is a true story. Missing is. And this does not portray American diplomacy in a good light at all. And it was criticized heavily. And yeah, it's kind of astounding that it picked up Oscar nominations because this was a really controversial film at the time. And Jack Lemmon is superb in it. He's kind of in that uh, save the tiger down and out beat but he's trying so hard to stay humble and humane and it's a guy who has all this american decency in him it is slowly being stripped away from him because of the reality of the situation 
and he plays into that really well. So that's a great pick. It's the reality of ignoring what's actually happening in front of you. Like people would just be walking the streets, but there'd be dead bodies. And what do you do? Do you acknowledge it or do you just pretend like it's not there and you just move on? Yeah. And there's and I like the movie that doesn't it doesn't do anything other than that. It just shows you exactly what's happening. And then you're left to figure out how you feel about that. Number eight for me, I'm going to pick things up, make it a little peppy. Tootsie, Cindy Pollock. Everyone, go watch Tootsie right now. It has some prescient things to say about the world we're living in, or I guess have always been living in, obviously. Dustin Hoffman really flies in this. His offset combative nature with Sidney Pollack really comes through in their scenes together. They're a joy to watch. (laughs) And does Jeff know is probably top 10 funniest lines of all time. I love Tootsie. It just, it really held up. That's a lot of the conversation that we're talking about. What's important to me are movies that hold up, mm-hmm. or at least what's a big part of my ranking and my conversation is if it holds up. And Tootsie held up really well. It's just a fun movie. It is. It's really fun. And this, I think, is a perfect example of the movie that we we're talking about where the 70s died and the 80s begin mm-hmm. because the content of this movie pushes boundaries the way the 70s did. So much so that it's completely relevant today. But they give it such a pop sensibility that it lives in the 80s. It feels like an 80s movie, but it also feels like a 70s movie. And I think for that reason, I like this movie a lot because it has found that perfect blend. So 1982 is really the perfect year that this movie could have come out. Right, exactly. Number seven. All right, this is a big one. This is Fitzcarraldo. Very nice. Do you want to talk about this one a little bit later, or do we bring it up now? Is this seven for you? Let's hold on it for a little bit. Okay, okay. But I pre- it'll be a nice little tease. Well, yeah, we'll wait for Fitzcarraldo. It's worth it. It's worth the wait. It, 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 it's, it's, it is. It's almost like a Herculean wait. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'll, um, oh, nice one, nice one. You slid that in there. <laughs> so I'll move on to my number seven, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Amy Heckerling. I love Fast Times. You know, similar to my they don't make them like they used to biopic rant from earlier, they just don't make teen high school movies as good as Fast Times at Ridgemont High anymore. Written by Cameron Crowe, directed by Amy Heckerling, who went on to direct Clueless. This movie is remembered for a lot of different reasons, but I just like to remind people that this one does have scenes that hit pretty hard. The Jennifer Jason Lee storyline is it's not a joke. It's some real shit. Yeah. And also, and also, I love to remind people whenever Sean Penn does a funny cameo in something, like he just had a hilarious bit in the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, I always like to remind people that this dude started out as Jeff Spicoli, one of the most iconic stoners of all of film history. So I love Fast Times. It's a great ride every time. And again, the birth of what would become the 80s. I mean, it's not the first high school movie, but it is kind of like the one that everyone goes to as to where it all started. It's the template. Yeah. Yeah. That was the bar and every other high school movie kind of to this day is based off of this template. You meet your different characters, how they all interact within their cliques, how they all interact within each other. It's still going on. And you think about like immediately what that the success of this movie did for that decade, you know, putting forth movies like Valley Girl. Yeah. All these movies that are coming out that kind of start to piggyback off of the high school genre because 
it does well. And then it's kind of cool to see the way that the generations have taken that. So then you do get to movies like Clueless and American Pie, mm-hmm. and then to even go to Superbad, and then to finally the one that I think of right now is Booksmart. Like these are all high school movies for their time, but it kind of all started with Fast Times. Yeah. All right, number six from you. Oh, I love this movie. First Blood. Nice. Rambo. Yeah. This movie is, I mean, it's just one of the greatest action movies. But the thing about this movie, too, is this movie is like really emotionally intense. It is one of the best encapsulations of PTSD. When you talk to someone who's been through wartime and they've struggled with PTSD, this is always a movie that I've heard from soldiers from different times that come back to where they really, really resonate with this movie. And the way that Sylvester Stallone is when he's about to get cut by the knife, the way he sees the knife, it's so raw. It's such a raw, visceral movie. And I think it's more than an action movie. And I do want to talk about Sylvester Stallone's acting because I know he gets a lot of shit for this. I think he's incredible. It's completely emotionally raw, and and that's what we're getting, and that's what I like about it. And also, he's a badass, man. Like This is a guy that made his own success for himself, so I really, really appreciate Sylvester Stallone. I think this movie is wildly misunderstood. If you watch any subsequent Rambo movie, they are off the rails on purpose. I, I threw... The most recent one, I think, is on Amazon Prime. It's like 90 minutes. It's fucking insane. It's so gory and bloody and nuts. But if you go back to the source, this is a movie about a guy with PTSD. I don't even consider this a good action movie, to be honest. It's just a good movie about a guy with PTSD. And I've spent a lot of my professional life working with veterans. And just as a way to make conversation, I've asked a lot of them, what is the most realistic movie about the coming home experience? And not necessarily that First Blood is the most realistic, but it Mm. definitely it's more popular and widely seen than something like, you know, maybe as dark as, let's say, the deer hunter. Yeah. But stuff like First Blood and American Sniper, those are brought up a lot as movies that really understand the PTSD veteran experience. And uh, Rambo as a thing in general, as a character, is remembered as this crazy action shoot 'em up thing. But the original movie is not like that. And no. this is a great choice and was really close to making my list. It just barely missed. Number six for me, it's a movie that stays in all of our lives because the director keeps tinkering with it. And that's Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is OK. Yeah. Is this on your list? This is on my list. This is my number four. Cool. Cool. I don't know what damn version is best at this point. The final cut, I suppose. But I just love this movie. It's legendary. And again, when you go back to the source of this movie, this is not like some crazy sci-fi action thriller. This to me has a very artsy European sentiment that has somehow formed into a sci-fi classic. But I've never considered this an action movie. No. I love it for the noir aspects, the neo-noir. Oh, yeah. And um, this might be very controversial, but I actually prefer the voiceover narration to not having it. Interesting. It Okay, wait a minute. Yeah. It, do you think that's because that's what you, what I presume you started with? Huh, good question. Um, I saw it when I was in college for the first time. It was actually my first film class. Me too. Hey, oh, yeah, cool. And 
I didn't even know that there was a later version because I think he didn't come out with the the final cut until 2007, correct? Yeah, but there are straight up like, uh, I think, seven different versions of it at this point. There and the are. one that I had on DVD was the one with narration, I think. I, I, I don't even know, man. My absolute favorite version of this movie is the international cut from 1982, mm-hmm. which is very, very similar to the original theatrical release, except uh, he was allowed to have a little bit more violence in the international cut. It, it, it makes it, it feels a little like the stakes are higher. But um, even though the narration does not do anything for the movie, he's kind of just spoon feeding us that we don't need to be spoon fed. Right. But there's something about it that I just like. I like because it really makes me feel like it's a noir in that way. I don't, I just feel like we get to know Deckard a little bit more with the narration. And I think I just personally like to hear it as a noir element. But I do miss in the in the theatrical release from the 82 is that there isn't the uh, assumption that he might be a replicant. Mm-hmm. But I still I dig the narration. Awesome. So we are at your number five. This is a movie that I we brought up recently in a previous podcast, but I'm bringing it up again because it's got to crack the top five. E.T., oh, which amen. I know this has got to be super high on your list. Number two for me. Oh, We're yeah. going to talk about it now. Yeah, that's great. Oh, God, I'm so happy you like this one because yet again, coming back to a familiar theme on what are you watching here? Nick Dostal does not like movies featuring children, folks. <sighs> By and large. And he took to this one and he took to it well because E.T. is great and it is a classic. Please continue. And it really is. And um, seeing the camera always from the angle of a child's perspective, Mm -hmm. it really puts you into that childlike atmosphere of not understanding what the world is doing because you're looking up at it all, but you're also finding everything that you need to like you're you're kind of experiencing everything for the first time like life when you're a kid like that and the camera is speaking to that the entire time and it's something that really resonated with me when I first saw it fairly recently and um it made me feel very vulnerable like a kid uh whether you're a kid or an adult that movie rings true and I and I would really kind of question someone that didn't feel something towards that movie kind of be like you're dead inside et to me is magic mystery life this is my favorite movie as a kid like i said it remains one of my favorites today like you just said it's a rare film for kids and adults equally and it's funny in quarantine i've been making my way through all the movies that have won oscars for picture director all the major awards and i was watching john ford's the quiet man a few months ago from 1952 and that's the clip that Elliot mimics in E.T. when E.T.'s watching the television drunk. And when I saw that scene from The Quiet Man, because I'd never seen it before, I got like chills. And it's pretty early in a quiet man in the quiet man. It's like 10 minutes in. And I was like, oh man, that's a clip from E.T. Ah, I just yeah, I love everything about E.T. And just to be clear, that was my number two for 1982. And that was my number five. Yeah, yeah, because my number five was Diner, which we talked about. Your number four was Blade Runner. Yep. That brings us to my number four. All right. Which is The Verdict by Sidney Lumet. That is my number three. <laughs> awesome. Well, there you go. Written by David Mamet, starring Paul Newman as Frank Gavin. Oh, Frank Gavin. My second favorite Newman behind Cool Hand Luke. 
Really? Yeah. The subtleties on this performance were lost on me when I was younger. I knew I liked it, but now that I'm older, now that I'm invested, I have responsibility. I really appreciate that this guy comes to realize that his entire life is just shit. He doesn't like his place in the world. It doesn't seem like he liked the journey to get to that place. He drinks. He drinks early. He lets his law office go. He has nothing and no one. And I kind of love that he puts all that he has in life and in humanity into this one seemingly easy to settle malpractice case. And it's his last shot at redemption. But this is Mamet and this is Lumet. So redemption does not come in the form of glory. This is Mamet's most mature script, arguably the last great film Lumet made, at least until his final one before the devil knows you're dead. And for my money, a nearly never better Paul Newman. I I think the verdict is a really smart, mature a movie for adults. You know, it's just like an adult movie that we really do not see made today. It, very, very true. It's a slow burn. You need to hold attention to it because the subtleties are everything in this movie. And you're right about Paul Newman's performance. It, it's not typical Newman. He is very, very bogged down by the misery of his life. The scene when he decides to do the right thing, mm-hmm. that's just great acting. That, like The way that he comes to find all that out, because it's all completely in the moment. It's all hitting him right then and there. I want to talk about the cinematography one more time because it's funny how I was talking about feeling like a kid. I felt the same way with the shot when it's in the beginning when uh, he's drunk and he's in his office and he's just tearing his office apart. Oh, yeah. The camera is so low that it almost feels mm-hmm. like we're hiding. Like we're we're trying right. to keep really, really low so he doesn't see us or he doesn't accidentally hit us with, you know, the drawer that he's flinging across the room. He's just great. Newman is, by the way, if we haven't talked about it, he's my top three favorite actors. I love everything about Paul Newman. Yeah, and I love him in this so much. And the, the verdict is a very smart, very mature film again. Really good, really holds up. So that was your number three, my number four, your number three. My number three is Fitzcarraldo. Oh Oof. my God. You go first. It was your number seven, so you have earned the right to talk about it first. Have at it. I had no <laughs> idea what this movie was. I found it, I found it in my research for this podcast episode, and I was like, Fitzcarraldo, this name keeps popping up. And I'm like, oh, it's Werner Herzog, though. And I'd never heard of it. And then I read the synopsis is that a guy who wants to bring an opera house to where is it? Where's this? In Peru. In Peru. In Peru. This guy, Klaus Kinski, loves opera. And I have to say that I don't think that there are many performances that I have ever seen where I have believed a character's conviction and love for some one thing more than Klaus Kinsey's performance in here. The way he feels about opera, it's giving me goosebumps right now because he believes with his soul, his entire being, that opera is the answer to life. It is everything, but you can feel every bit of the hurt that he has when someone can't see the beauty that he sees. I think that was my biggest takeaway from outside of which you'll talk about, but the Herculean effort of what this story was and the making of this movie. 
But um, I did want to bring up Klaus Kinski's conviction in this because it's it's really a breathtaking performance in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So happy this made your list. Um, yeah, finally, good God, we're several episodes into this podcast, and I don't even know if I've mentioned this man before. He's my favorite living filmmaker, the great Werner Herzog. And in 1982, he released one of his best films, Fitzcarraldo. The movie is about a man obsessed with a dream, uh, that of bringing opera music to Peru, as you mentioned. And to fund this, he decides to become a rubber baron, which takes him deep into the dangerous jungles of Peru. Ultimately, Fitzcarraldo realizes that if he is able to drag his giant steamship over a mountain, he can connect two rivers and open up a new trade market, which will make him rich and allow him to bring opera to the jungle. So, it's 1982, your avant-garde indie badass filmmaker Werner Herzog, you're deep in the jungle, you don't have money for special effects, so how do you drag a ship over a mountain? Well, you just drag it right the fuck over. And Fitzgerald is my number three, but it's actually tied with another movie, and that's Burden of Dreams. Because if you want to know how they did that and how they actually pulled a steamship over a mountain using a simple pulley system, then you can watch Les Blank's film Burden of Dreams, which is a feature-length documentary about the making of Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald was an extremely difficult film to make for a number of reasons. Oh, God. The lead actors both dropped out into shooting. The jungle conditions were extremely harsh. Herzog's new lead, as you mentioned, Klaus Kinski, was um, pretty much certifiably insane. He tried to shoot Herzog dead with a gun on set. That was just one of the times he tried to have Herzog killed. Um, Yeah, tough shoot. And it's all in Burden of Dreams. And... Brother man, watching that ship go over that mountain, which they really did, is better than any special effect in movies today. Oh, yeah. And I'm obsessed with Herzog. I'm obsessed with the Herzog-Kinski relationship. They made five movies. It's kind of impossible. If you do a little digging into Herzog, it's kind of impossible to not see the parallels between him and Fitzcarraldo. I mean, Herzog is a guy with a vision to make movies, and he has made them for decades by any means necessary. He very famously made his first student film by stealing a video camera from a college like back room. And he was like, whatever. They, it, no one was using it, so I figured I'd use it and make a movie. He's really one of a kind, and this is one of the best examples of his work. It's a fantastic film, Fitzcarraldo. Please go check that out, and then please throw on Burden of Dreams, which may be the best making of movie ever made. It's almost required viewing, I think, if you've watched Fitzcarraldo. Watch that documentary because I don't know about you, man. I would never in a million years do that as a filmmaker. I would never embark on something that gigantic of a feat. He's embarking on something in which he is giving himself no outs because yeah. we've talked about Cassavetes. All my favorites, Bergman, Cassavetes, Herzog, even Soderbergh to a degree, they all have this do or die mentality. Bergman's way, way around that because he had a lot of trouble. You can watch his early work. He had a lot of trouble finding his footing. And then his way to do or die to make the work was to basically make movies with the same 19 people for decades. Mm -hmm. Bergman made damn near one movie a year or one movie every other year with like the same 19 people, including cast and crew. And most of them were shot on the same fucking island in Sweden. Yeah. So it's very contained. Cassavetes, we talked about him. Yep. Any means necessary. You do whatever the hell you got to do to make money. It all goes into the production. This is all in the same thing. It it's is. all. I mean, when you watch Burden of Dreams, you're watching Herzog. This is not a dude like 
giving polished interviews. This is a guy, it's very reminiscent of Hearts of Darkness, the making of yeah. about Apocalypse Now, where you're watching, you're kind of watching Francis Ford Coppola like a, like about to die. Like yeah. you don't know if he's going to make it through the end of this movie. And Herzog's just like, I mean, yeah, I knew what I was getting myself into, but I'm out here and I'm out here with people who don't speak my language. He's there with like indigenous populations. That's what I and mean. The star of his movie is going to these people and saying, I will pay you money, more money than you ever know, to kill with a gun or a spear the director of the movie. These are not made up stories. This is shit that actually happened. And then those people are coming to Herzog and they're like, uh, that guy offered to have us kill you, but we like you better. Do you want us to kill him instead? And Herzog's like, no, it's okay. Just don't don't listen to him. We're going to do a whole... Herzog podcast. It'd actually be a lot of fun to do a Herzog Kinski podcast and just talk about their five movies. You would like all of them. They're really, really fucking good. But yeah, I cannot say enough about Herzog, Fitzcarraldo, Kinski. Great stuff. But now we are on your number two. Dead number two. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Nice. It's a complete love just for that movie that I have. It is a good science fiction movie. On its own, without being a Trekkie fan, you don't need to be one to watch it, because you certainly weren't. Very true. And, you know, it's got a very Moby Dick type of, I think that was a very big inspiration. I mean, some of uh, Ricardo Montalban's lines as Khan are just straight up quotes from Moby Dick. And uh, this is just be just a funny little thing. Without spoiling anything, uh, there's a scene at the end, because uh, Spock, who is one of the main characters, uh, has a sign that he does for Live Long and Prosper, where he basically takes his two his fingers and splits them in half. So he's got his index and middle, and then his other two separate into a V. And so he's separated through glass, and he, he, he puts up the Live Long and Prosper. William Shatner doesn't know how to do that with his hand. <laughs> and he's trying to put up his best version of it that he can and he can't <laughs> and i forgot where i heard that it must have been on some like weird trekkie documentary that i saw but it's one of those things that i can never unsee now whenever i watch it i was like here we go shatner he's going for it he's gonna do his best oh and he fails okay so we've arrived at an interesting crossroads because my two is et so we should kick it to you for number one but I have a feeling it's the same movie, and I was wondering if I could take it on. Is it the same? Give me a thumbs up. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, boy. We arrive at the end. Oh, what a great, great way to end our list. One of the very best films. The best big, small movie ever made. Igmar Bergman's classic, Fanny and Alexander. Whew. My movie year rant earlier was for Fanny here, because Fanny was released in Sweden in 1982, but it did not arrive in the States until 1983, so it won four Oscars in 1983. But we're considering it a 1982 movie, and therefore it is my favorite film of 1982. Fanny and Alexander. This is one year in the life of the flamboyant Iqdal family. The film is set in 1907, and it's a big movie. It's full of lavish costumes, incredible set designs, stunning, like, all-timer stunning cinematography, all of which it won Oscars for, and it also won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, which is fitting. This movie's a tough sell because there are two versions of it. There's a theatrical version that is three hours long, and there's a television version that's five and a half hours long. Sweden, just to clear things up, Sweden does things a little differently. They don't have as many restrictions 
on TV. So the TV version of Fanny and Alexander is actually the truest form of the film. And I love it. I love all five and a half hours of it. I said the movie is big before, but there's also, it's so remarkably focused on the small details of this family. The movie is framed through the eyes of two children of the family, and it's the world as they see it, it's the world as Bergman sees it, and it represents as fine a film as I can see. You honestly don't lose much if you watch the three-hour version. He had to cut that for American film distribution, and it's good. I lived on that version for about 10 years until I discovered the longer cut. I just watched it yesterday. I woke up early so that I could watch it before we recorded this. And it was, it's just glorious. I love everything, everything about this movie. Film is my life. And this is one of the truest films I've ever seen. One of the most pure. It's about as grand as movies get. And I'm so happy it's your number one. I, I can't agree more with everything that you just said. And this movie really is, it was so close to cracking my top 10 of all time. And if there is one movie that is ever always going to be at the door of that of my top 10 of all time, it's this. Mm-hmm. I saw this movie because of you when we first met, and it was my first introduction to Ingmar Bergman. And since then, I have seen a plethora of his movies, and he is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. This is my favorite of everything I've seen from him. I really don't know if anything's going to beat this one for me. This movie spoke to me on so many different levels. One thing I think Ingmar Bergman doesn't get credit for, because I think that's one of those names, and we will get into an Ingmar Bergman episode at some point, um, but I'm sure people kind of heard about him. They know his name, but they might not. I think they probably just have a the seventh seal. They have an image of mm-hmm. like the death character and maybe persona. But... um. I love his writing. I think that might be my favorite thing about him as a filmmaker more than anything else. His writing is not nice. His writing is very, very mean. It's very cold. It's also very real. It's very true. And every actor has gold to play with when they're working with Enigmar Bergman's script. And some of the conversations in this movie are roller coasters of emotion. They're talking about how much, like for two people to talk about how much they hate the other person. That's not a, that's not a good conversation to have, but the way that they go about explaining it to the person. Bergman, he'll hone in on like that tooth in the back of your mouth has a green stain on it. Like that's how focused and specific his attacks can get and he yeah i mean and i feel like we're also kind of painting like a pretty negative version of the movie because well the truth is is that this movie is a very ugly kind of awful movie but it's also very hopeful i think um which is strange to kind of feel that way about this movie i think it's because i'm rooting for the hope in it so much i am like with in my bones hoping so so hard that something good happens. Yeah, I just love this movie. This movie and and I and really for anyone who's hearing this and they want to see it, please for the love of God, watch the full theatr uh the full television version. You can find it on um the Criterion collection. 
it is worth the five and a half hours. Both versions are good, but if you watch the full television version of it, you can watch it as a mini series to break it up for yourself. It's everything. You know, we've talked about this before that Bergman, a lot of his films came from such a place of hate because he had a really difficult upbringing. If you want some insight into his upbringing, watch this movie because he based Alexander on himself. He based Fanny on his sister. He based the bishop in this movie very, very closely on his own father. And the movie is kind of three three sections. You have the beginning when everyone's together and joyful. You have this middle section when everyone is split up and it's very terrifying. And then you have, you know, a section where we're seeing the fallout of everything. And it's a hard movie to talk about in terms of how you walk away from it without giving it away. But yeah, it's a huge mosaic of emotion. And this was always intended as Bergman's last film, his magnum opus. And also on Criterion, you can watch the feature-length making of documentary of this movie. And it's basically just behind-the-scenes stuff. There's no narration. There's no talking head. You're just watching Bergman be and watch his command of this set. It's so great to watch him... You know, they're setting up a shot and he just gives the actor playing Alexander a little slap on the back of the head and then they start goofing off in the corner and you're like, Bergman is so known as this serious guy. Yeah, Seventh Seal. You see that parodied a lot. His movies are always so mocked because it's just funny too because they're very, very serious films. But there was warmth in them, in some of them. Yeah. And there was joy. And yeah, this is a film of the highest order. I... It's just, it's that good to me. I'm really glad it resonated with you that much. And it's really cool that we landed on the same number one. Um, I've been keeping track. We had six that were the same. Diner, Fitzcarraldo, E.T., Blade Runner, Verdict, and Fanny and Alexander. That's great. I'm glad we had that variety. Yeah, me too. Me too. We spread things out a little bit. I want to do just some quick honorable mentions because there's a lot of really popular films here that you know, were considered, but that just didn't make our list. We have 48 Hours, Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> Gandhi, Night Shift, Pink Floyd the Wall. God, that oh. was that was weird. That was a crazy-ass rewatch. Poltergeist. Yeah. Rocky Three with Mr. T. Sophie's Choice. Whoa. Ain't no movie that we've talked about today heavier than Sophie's Choice, let me tell you that. Oof. And then the last big one from the year is An Officer and a Gentleman, which I rewatched this morning, and you know... It's fine, but have you seen this movie? I had never seen Officer and a Gentleman. That was the one that I never got a chance to get around to. Well, we don't... I, I mean, no, I'm just saying I don't have to go into it a lot, but the whole movie, the emotional the emotional turmoil between the two leading characters, Richard Gere and Louis Gossett Jr., comes down to this epic fight between them in the end. And that fight ends with Gossett Jr. kicking Gere straight in the nuts. And then he walks away like he won the fucking fight. It's like... I mean, they weren't fighting dirty, Gear was winning, and then Gossett Jr. just pulls this punk-ass move and walks away like he's victorious. I mean, anyone, okay, <laughs> anyone who watches an officer and a gentleman, Louis Gossett Jr. does not win that fight. That dude is not tough. That is a punk-ass move. If moves like that, all right, see, man, this shit pisses me off. If moves like that were on the table to begin with, then Gear would have gone straight for the nut kick right away. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's an unspoken agreement within the rules of hand-to-hand combat that you do not damage the jewels if you're fighting for your life then i get it okay but these dudes are having an agreed upon consensual beatdown it's punk ass move it's all i'm saying let's talk about the oscars (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I alluded it. to it before. 1982 Oscars. We're not gonna. A lot of the winners are not movies that we discussed. But I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna go about these in reverse. Let's just burn through these really quick. Best adapted screenplay. Missing wins, which was okay. cool that it was on your list. Its nominees are Das Boot, Sophie's Choice, The Verdict, and Victor Victoria. I go for The Verdict. I would love if David Mamet had an Oscar, but what about you? I think in this particular category, I would have to go with The Verdict as well. Best Original Screenplay, Gandhi wins. You also have Diner, E.T., An Officer and a Gentleman, and Tootsie. I, I guess I have to go E.T., honestly, but Diner is a close second. I, I think I might actually go with Tootsie. And that's not a bad call. Yeah. Tootsie's a great, great script. Sporting actor, we have Louis Gossett Jr., An Officer and a Gentleman, Charles Durning, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, John Lithgow, The World According to Garp, James Mason, The Verdict, Robert Preston, Victor Victoria. I like Louis Gossett Jr. winning for political reasons and for performance reasons. I'm okay with it. James Mason is my second. I agree. Well, you haven't even seen the fucking movie, so. <laughs> Supporting actress. This is actually, this is uh, tricky. Jessica Lang wins for Tootsie. Great. Glenn Close is nominated for The World According to Garp. Terry Garr for Tootsie. Kim Stanley for Francis. Leslie Ann Warren for Victor Victoria. Um, I have to go with Kim Stanley for Francis in this. And I can't believe I'm taking an Oscar away from Jessica Lang, but uh, she plays Jessica Lang's mother in Francis. And it is a truly villainous performance and i i i just couldn't get it out of my head and it feels weird to you know take it away from jessica lang who is a star of francis but yeah kim stanley wins that for me so we'll do best actress now meryl streep wins for sophie's choice it's kind of like the oscar performance of oscar performances there's no way she was not going to win julie andrews victor victoria jessica lang francis sissy spacek missing deborah winger an officer and a gentleman uh, sorry, Meryl. Jessica Lang wins this for me. And I've seen Sophie's Choice. I've seen Francis. Sophie's Choice to me, I'm not taking anything away from her, but uh, this is Jessica Lang's. So I am taking away supporting actress from her, but I'm giving her actress. What are your Sophie's Choice thoughts? My Sophie's Choice thoughts are that, yes, I believe Meryl Streep does a, I mean, my God, it's a phenomenal performance. But the thing about it was that I was more taken with Kevin Klein's performance in that movie. I thought that was I I I couldn't believe. I mean, you're just watching acting on on a certain level of excellence in that movie. I'm not the biggest fan of that movie. I think the acting's good, and I think that's kind of where it is for me. Yeah, fair enough. Best actor Ben Kingsley wins for Gandhi. Dustin Hoffman Tootsie, Jack Lemmon missing, Paul Newman the verdict. Peter O'Toole, my favorite year. I guess we can have the Gandhi conversation now. It's a quick one. I did rewatch it for this episode because I thought it was important. It was the first movie to win eight Oscars since 1964, My Fair Lady. And it started a very big Oscar trend of the studios making these big epics and positioning as the movie to win Oscars. And I mean, if you look after this, I don't have the list in front of me, but it's it's the Last Emperor, Dances with Wolves, Forrest Gump, Braveheart, English Patient, Gladiator. It's all the Titanic, Shakespeare in Love. It's these big epics. And the movie is not that bad. The movie holds up 
it tells a good story, but it's just an Oscar bait movie. And it's one of the first kind of movies of its kind in that way. My winner is Paul Newman. I agree. And it's interesting that I agree with Paul Newman. But it's interesting you say that, too, about the Gandhi thing, because, again, talking about 1982, a year of ushering new eras, we talked about the high school genre becoming a huge thing that would go on to this day. And then you've got Gandhi, another movie that kind of started that trend that lasts to this day. Best director, Richard Attenborough. That's the old man from Jurassic Park, folks. He wins for Gandhi. Wolfgang Peterson is nominated for Das Boot. Spielberg for E.T. Sidney Pollack for Tootsie. Sidney Lumet for The Verdict. This is tough because if, if I'm just going off the movie that is nominated, I vote Spielberg. But Spiel, but then if I'm incorporating Oscar history, it's like Spielberg has two. Sidney Lumet never won. But ultimately, I give it to Spielberg. I would agree. I would, I would give it to Spielberg, too. And then picture Gandhi wins and you have E.T. missing Tootsie verdict. It's E.T. for me. Yeah, I think I would, too. <laughs> All right. That's it. Done with our list. Done with the Oscars. We're going to move on to what are you watching? I'll go first. Mine's a little hard to find. That's kind of a bummer. I try to make them so they can be easily found. But I'm going with a fun little cat and mouse thriller from 1982 called Death Trap. This was Sidney Lumet's second film of the year, actually, and it's about a famous playwright played by Michael Caine trying to steal a manuscript from a young writer, a really good manuscript from a young writer played by Christopher Reeve, and he's trying to steal this by any means necessary. The movie was based on a play, and the movie is intentionally staged like that. Almost all of it takes place within Caine's home, but it's a lot of fun. It's always great to see Christopher Reeve outside of Superman. He... He really had class and charm, and he had a dignity to his performance, and this movie very playfully goes places you don't expect. So I liked it. Death Trap, if you can find it. I got something to say. Say it. Well, it, it speaks to the um, weird timeline of when movies were released, but I'm going to go with Mad Max 2 Road Warrior. Mel Gibson. I love this movie. So if anyone has not seen Mad Max 2 Road Warrior and they have seen Mad Max Fury Road, check out Road Warrior and see where you hold up. You might still like Fury Road better because that that movie is a very like people defend that movie a lot and they really love it. That movie's got hardcore fans. But Road Warrior, what are you watching? Watch it. And in that regard, it's kind. that it kind of goes into the 1982 thing we've been talking about a little bit. Go back to the source. Like, if you like Fury Road, go back and watch Road Warrior. Just like, go back and watch the first Rambo. It ain't nothing like other, you know, yeah. other ones down the line. But, all right, some hot takes there at the end. But that's it from us, everyone. 1982. A lot of fun stuff to dive into. Low-key great year. As always, thanks for listening and happy watching. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to talk about one of the all-timers, someone we lost entirely too soon, the great Heath Ledger. Stay tuned.